When it comes to FDR and the Holocaust, historians tend to reduce FDR into one of two categories. Either they'll condemn him for not doing enough, or they praise him for doing as much as he possibly could have. The truth of the matter is, is that it's a little bit more nuanced, and more recent scholarship has argued that FDR's attitudes towards the plight of the Jews, well, it actually shifted and changed throughout his presidency. In part two of our series, FDR and the Jews, we look at FDR's reactions to the early rise of Hitlerism and how he dealt with the plight of the Jews leading up to the horrors of Kristallnacht. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Welcome to part two of FDR and the Jews. Today, we're going to talk about more controversial stuff than last week. Last week, we really focused um, and, and spent most of our time talking about FDR's domestic policies, the New Deal, um, his response to the Depression, his, resp- his response to the uh, flagging economy. Tonight, we're going to discuss FDR's response to the Holocaust, specifically um, the refugee crisis. Um, we're going to try to cover it this week and next week. Um, a little commercial announcement. I could see us potentially needing another week afterwards, maybe just as a follow-up or we'll see. We'll see how much we get through today and tomorrow and next week, but we'll see. Today's uh, discussion is going to mainly revolve around the earlier parts. We're not going to get to the war. We're not going to get, I don't think we're going to get to 1941. Um, we're probably not even going to get to 1939, but it's going to be the um, FDR's initial responses to the, to the war and to the persecution of the Jews in Europe, in Germany. We'll, if we have time, we'll talk about, we're going to then start a bit ta- discussing immigration and the refugee crises, crisis, and time permitting, we'll talk about some of the anti-Semitic responses here in the United States as well, some of the key, key people. This is by far the most controversial slash sensitive topic in all of American Jewish history is FDR's response to the Holocaust. His reaction to it, what did he know? When did he know? What could have he done? What could he have not done? Um, is, is clearly the most, the, mo- the most sensitive topic and controversial topic and most widely debated topic. I was you know, on a call earlier, you know, about two hours ago, with someone and um, he saw the class. He's like, okay, rabbi. So FDR, you pro or con? It's like, it's like, it's like you have to have an answer. You have, it's, it's a very divisive topic. Indeed, the historiography, the study of history, the, the response of FDR, uh, which we talked about it, we alluded to last week, um, they tend to most historians tend to fall somewhere on a spectrum. You have on one end of the of the spectrum um, books like this, The Abandonment of the Jews by David Wyman, who also wrote a great book, which I haven't read. I'm only halfway through this one. Um, but he wrote another kind of the, the, the prequel to this, which is called Paper Walls. Um, the Abandonment of the Jews, you can kind of get a, a guess from its title where he's going to end up on that debate. Um, Wyman was a very, very big critic of FDR and FDR's response. So that would, you know, books like this, While Six Six Million Parish, uh, which I've never read, but that's another, again, very critical work on FDR and his response or lack thereof. 
You have other books that are all the way on the other and other scholars all the way on the other side. Uh, one classic, I forget who wrote it, um, The Myth of Rescue, which again, you can kind of get the sense again from its title, The Myth of Rescue, as if to imply there was nothing that could have been done. It was a myth. Any, any notion that there, there was opportunities for rescue, it's just a myth. So you have people who celebrate Laud praise FDR. Um, you have Brightman and Lichtman's work, FDR and the Jews, which again, a lot of this course is, is based off of this work and I mean, other works as well. But uh, this is a fantastic work. They have a little bit more nuanced of approach. What are my personal feelings? I'm not going to tell you, or at least not tonight. I, I'd like to save my personal thoughts and reflections until um, after we go through some of the discussion, some of the relevant historical points. Um, I, have, I do have my opinions, but I do want to just share one idea, um, just sort of set the stage, set the tone for, for this most sensitive of discussions. It's an interesting thing. I read an essay last week by the great uh, Musser Jewish ethicist, philosopher, Rabbi Nussan Svi Finkel, the, the altar of Slabodka. He was the head of the, of the famed Slabodka yeshiva, uh, many of whom perished in the war. Uh, Rabbi Finkel, I mean, he, he died before the war. He actually emigrated um, from, Slabodka is a small suburb of, uh, of Kovna in Lithuania, which would be absolutely obliterated by the Nazis. And Rabbi Finkel, um, he, he founded this yeshiva in the early 1990s, I even think it was in the 18, late 1890s. Um, his yeshiva, he actually moves to Israel in the 20s. And he starts a yeshiva called the, the Hebron Yeshiva in Hebron, which will tie into our story loosely. Um, there was the, the, the tragic Hebron massacre of 1929 that was in his yeshiva uh, that he had founded that moves to, to, to Hebron. Hebron yeshiva would then leave the city of Hebron. It now exists, confusingly enough, in Jerusalem. The Hebron yeshiva is located in Jer Jerusalem, not Hebron. Uh, in any event, um, the yeshiva that he founded, the yeshiva that I studied in, is kind of like a grandchild of the Slabatka yeshiva. The founder of my yeshiva in 1933 um, was, was a student of Rabbi Finkel, uh, but that, that's a story in its own right. Rabbi Finkel writes an incredible essay. We just finished reading in the weekly Torah portion the story of Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood. And he quotes, I believe it's a, a passage, I believe it's in the Zohar, but it's also uh, reflected in the Medrash as well. That two things. First of all, it's called oftentimes the flood is referred to as May Noah, the waters or the flood of Noah, which clearly the implication is, is that Noah to some degree was responsible, bears some accountability, some responsibility for the tragedy that was the flood. And the, I believe it's the Medrash, which explains is that Noah, Noah didn't go ahead. He didn't pray for salvation. He didn't go ahead and pray for the salvation of his generation. And that's why he's considered somewhat accountable, responsible for the destruction that took place. And Rabbi Finkel points out and says, well, wait a minute. First of all, the people of that generation, we know were cruel. They were corrupt. They were tyrant. They were evil. We know that Noah tried, he was an outreach rabbi. He was trying to get humanity back on pace. He was trying to teach people good morality, kindness. He just wasn't effective. They weren't listening. Number two, he says, this is you read the Torah, how the Torah describes Noah. He says, the verse says, 
Ela told us, Noach, these are the generations of Noach. This is, these are the descendants. It says, Noach, Ish Tzadik, Tamim Hayah, B'Doroso, B'Salachim, B'Salach, Noach. Noach was an Ish Tzadik. He's a righteous man. Tamim Hayah, B'Doroso. He was complete in his generation. God walks with Noah. You know, that's a pretty good resume. That's not bad. Noah was a good, but he was a righteous man. He was a pious man. There's no way that he went ahead as everyone is suffering around him. You know, he's he's warned, he's taught, there's a flood that's going to come. And Noah just, you know, sits there and does nothing. Of course he prayed. Of course he tried. As a matter of fact, that there's another metric that says, he. you know how long it took him to build that ark? It's 120 years. That's a long time. Now, he lived a very long time. Noah's, he lived 600 years. He was an old man. So he's building that ark for 120 years. Now, if God wants, God can, you know, give him the Titanic overnight. Why does Noah need to build the thing for 120 years? And the Medrash explains is because, you know, everyone remember the, I mean, you can't say he's been canceled. Bill Cosby, remember the Bill Cosby Noah routine? No, Bill Cosby, not a great guy, but listen to his Noah routine. It's absolutely hilarious. He's sitting there like he's building away in his, in his driveway. Hey, Noah, what you doing over there? Building an ark. What's an ark? You know, this is going to be a flood. And, and the truth is, Cosby was a way off. Noah was working, hacking away on this ark to get everyone's attention for 120 years so that people would know, oh, God is going to punish everyone. There's going to be a flood. We better repent. So Noah clearly cared for his generation. He clearly cared about the people around him. So what do you mean that he bears some responsibility? That Noah didn't pray for his generation. Of course he prayed for his generation. Rabbi Finkel explains, and, and it's a very important point. He says, of course Noah prayed. And of course Noah was concerned. And of course Noah did a whole lot to help the people around him. But he didn't do enough. He could have done a little more. He could have prayed a little harder. And the Medrash criticizes Noah why didn't you go ahead and pray for the generation? It doesn't mean that Noah did nothing. It doesn't even mean that he didn't do a whole lot. He did a ton. But he only prayed, I don't know, 99%. And he could have done 100. He could have and should have. And he bears responsibility for that. You know, when we can impact others, when we can help others, when we could be a good influence on others, you know, it's not black and white. You can't just say, well, I, I, what do you mean? I'm a helpful person. I'm a good person. I care about other people. It doesn't work. It's not binary. There are degrees. It's a very important lesson in life. There are degrees. And Noah, to some degree, you know, could have done a little bit more and fell a little bit short based on his own standard. I don't know what I think about FDR. Again, I'm going to save most of my remarks, you know, for next week or the week after. But suffice it to say, I think, I don't think anyone would possibly argue that FDR did all he could. That's for sure not correct. He definitely did not do everything that he could have done. And for that, he's going to bear historical accountability. So what happened? So we talked last week, one of the great ironies or interesting points is FDR comes to power 32, um, the election of 32, and he becomes president in March of 33. And it's within weeks of the rise of Adolf Hitler is, you know, when... He becomes president exactly when Hitler becomes um, chancellor of Germany. And again, their careers are direct, almost a virtual, but direct uh, parallel mirror image of one another. During the election cycle and the election campaign of 32, FDR was focused on his domestic agenda. He was focused on 
The New Deal, he was focused on the suffering that was happening at home. People were suffering. People were out of work. The economy stunk. That's where FDR put all of his weight and all of his focus. He did not want to deal with foreign affairs. The truth of the matter is the United States at this point in world history was they just, it, you know, it wasn't too long before they had to deal with World War I. As we'll see, World War I, most Americans felt that the United States entering into World War I was a mistake. Over 70% of people felt it was, it was a mistake. What are we getting to? Why are we getting into foreign world wars and foreign things? Let, you know, the Atlantic Ocean will be our protection. We got the Atlantic on one side, the Pacific on the other. You know, why? We don't need to worry about the, the, the quarrels in Europe. That was George Washington famously in his farewell address. You know, he cautioned about foreign entanglements. Ignore Europe. And that's how most people in the United States felt. The United States Army was tiny. I believe, uh, I remember reading that, that Poland's Navy was bigger than the United States Navy in 1932. The United States had no army. Um, Hoover in 1932, and people knew about Hitler. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. And again, as he's working his way up in Germany, uh, Hoover, um, you know, you know, spoke out against Hitler. Uh, interesting is we talked about, someone said, oh, what are you going to talk about Rabbi Wise? Stephen Wise, who we started talking about last week, actually in 32, uh, did not support FDR. He felt that FDR wasn't doing enough. His liberal domestic agenda, you know, wasn't enough. I don't know if Wise campaigned for Hoover. I think he did. I think he was actually proactive for Hoover. Um, but interestingly, after FDR wins the election, Wise, who was an opportunist, uh, I don't know about my, my feelings about historical figures. Wise is certainly not one of my favorites. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was an opportunist. After FDR wins, he immediately sends him like a congratulatory telegram. Oh, you know, Mazel tov, and would eventually become a very influential person in, in, FDR's, um, in FDR's circles. FDR wins the election by a landslide, uh, 57%. Um, you know, huge... Uh, turnout. You know, the Jews voted for, I think it was 82%. We talked about it, over 80% view, uh, vote for, for, um, for FDR. After, you know, after the election, before the, but before FDR becomes president, he's still president-elect, there were considerations, there were suggestions that Hoover and FDR issue a joint statement of condemnation against Hitler. You know, so that we're all against this kind of stuff. FDR said no. Now, why not? As I mentioned last week, FDR is a slippery guy. He was a very good politician. And he usually put his polit political interests before almost everything else. He typically would put his political interests before his personal convictions of right or wrong, which is, again, why he's a very complex person. Hoover was a pariah. Hoover came to represent the failure of the United States economy. <coughs> And FDR didn't want to do anything that would show, you know, I agree with anything that Hoover has ever said, done, or, you know, ever touched. So FDR didn't want to issue a joint statement. And again, we alluded to this last week, FDR used that political maneuver of kind of using Hoover as a lightning rod for everything bad. Um, that was a, a good political maneuver. You know, tragically or sadly, you know, Hoover goes down in American history as, as, as a loser. And the truth is, that although his presidency was, was certainly not sterling, he, he himself was a very good person, a very decent man. 
Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany in January of 1933. Um, that in and of itself was a lot of political machinations. He, again, it's a parliamentary government and he was able to go ahead and cobble together, um, cobble together a coalition government. February, if you study your, your World War II history, there's the, uh, the fire in the Reichstag, that's the, the parliament building. Um, still to this day, it's unclear who set that fire. It was clearly an, a work of an arsonist. It's unclear who. Many, if not most, people suspect that it was the Nazis themselves burnt down the Reichstag as a way of Hitler immediately after this fire. Hitler goes ahead and says, well, there's a national emergency. I need emergency powers, dictatorial powers, um, of which he received. And that was the beginning of the end. It's something straight out of Star Wars. Or Star Wars really got it from, from the rise of, of Hitler. You know, Hitler was granted dictatorial powers because of this terrible emergency in Germany. Immediately after that, even as early as March 33, uh, Nazis began harassing the Jews. It was very clear the Nazi party did not like the Jews. But again, if you study your World War II history, if you recall Holocaust history, you know, the day that Hitler rises to power is not when the Holocaust begins. You know, persecutions begin, but even then, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. You know, the final solution isn't until 41, the summer of 41, or the spring of 41, you know. But immediately after his rise to power, Jews are beaten on the streets publicly. You know, there's all sorts of persecution. But more importantly, or, or in a way, uh, in a, a scarier kind of way, was the rhetoric. You know, Hitler had vocalized his thoughts and his plans, and it was a very scary, very scary time. Um, Dachau, the first concentration camp, opens up, you know, seven weeks after Hitler rises to power. Now, this is not, Dachau is not a place, most Jews did not end up in Dachau. It was more for political um, opponents of Hitler would end up there. And it wasn't a death camp. It was just, it was a classic concentration camp. It was a gigantic prison. Um, what was that? Oh, was it a thought question? It was, no. In Dachau? You were, is it? Oh, really? Well, that's creepy. <laughs> Here, honey, have a cake. You know, like, uh, question. To what degree is the American Nazi Party We'll get there. What we'll, we'll get there later. Hopefully later today, we'll, we'll talk about Lindbergh and, and different, different groups in the United States. Um, interesting. Oh, by April of 33, um, Nazis removed Jews from most civil service jobs. Um, interesting. What was the media's reaction to the, to the news of early persecution of the Jews? So the role of the media of the United States during, you know, the, the rise and fall of Nazi Germany is a subject of a lot of discussion. Clearly, there were major failures of, of the of U.S. media. Uh, we'll talk about that probably more next week when we talk about the Regner Telegram um, and, and the New York Times and, and what they did or didn't do. But it should be noted early on in 33, the media actually picked up on these reports and it did receive a lot of attention in the media that the Jews are being persecuted. Again, the horrors aren't anywhere close to you know, the, the, the horrors of the Holocaust, but the fact that a civilized society like Germany can allow 
you know, for persecution, public racial persecution, uh, you know, was a sensational story, which the media did pick up on. What were the early responses from the United States Jewish community? So there was a wide spectrum early on. There was a wide spectrum. You have, if you recall from, uh, we we gave a course on on American Jewish history in general, you have the early German Americans, Jewish Americans who came like in the 1840s, 1850s. Those are the old establishment Jews. The old establishment Jews, uh, B'nai B'rith, uh, if you recall B'nai B'rith, uh, the American Jewish, uh, the American Jewish Committee. So many of the old time establishment German Jews, um, they advocated for quiet diplomacy. They didn't want people to make the stink. They didn't want Jews to protest. They didn't want the Jews rallying in the streets. They called for quiet diplomacy. The reason being, they felt that um, all of that would lack credibility lead to anti-Semitism at home, and would just provoke the Nazis farther. If you think about it, it was a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? What's, what's Hitler's big, big claim is that the, the Jews have this worldwide network controlling the world economy and trying to take over the world. And, and look, the Jews are protesting in America, you see? And that was a concern that the old school German Jews felt, that if we indeed go ahead and boycott and shout from the mountaintops, That's just going to inflame Hitler and say, you see, there is a worldwide conspiracy. I say something negative about a Jew over here and a Jew 6,000 miles away starts protesting. And they were very concerned for that. So they advocated for for quiet diplomacy. On the other other side, there were many Jews, um, particularly the American Jewish Congress, led by Stephen Wise, to his credit, who said, no, 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 we need to say something. We need to protest. We need to rally. We need to go ahead and publicly denounce and decry the atrocities. Um, even farther than that, you had really the first people to really go ahead and do something was a small group of World War I Jewish veterans, which is a very small organization, but they found a rising star, um, a very loud uh, vocal person named Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver. Now, both Rabbi Wise and Rabbi Silver both reform rabbis. Interestingly, they were both quasi-Zionists, which was unusual, most reformed rabbis at this time were very anti-Zionistic. But Rabbi Hillel, interestingly as well, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Silver, Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, was actually a Republican. He was a strong and vocal Republican, and he called for a boycott um, against German goods. He called for a boycott, and we need a rally. And he was the loudest of the voices. What did the Zionists in Israel, how did they respond? So controversially, and we're not going to get into too much detail about this now, is the the Zionists in Israel early, early on in 33 and moving forward, actually, their response was was tremendously controversial. It was called the Havara Agreements. The Havara Agreements of 30, Havara means to, to, Havara means to pass, to transfer. They actually worked on these Havara Agreements, whereby they actually would go ahead and pay Nazi Germany money, receive industrial goods in return, and thereby also allow immigrants to get out of Germany into Israel. About 20,000 Jews fleed Nazi Germany based on this Havara agreement. It was really great for Israel, right? They got goods. It was good for the Germans. They got money. And it was good for the refugees who got out of Germany. It was bad for the Americans, because here's Germany, you know, having, you know, getting more wealth and money. That's not something that early on when you know, it was pretty clear that Germany was on the wrong side 
of things. Um, it would be it was a very very controversial um, reaction, um, but that is how they that is what they did. So what happened here at home in March 27, 1933? Stephen Wise organizes a rally at Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden, right where the home of the Knicks, right? Madison. I always say it's like the funniest thing. Yeah, I've lived in New York for a little bit. They'd always say Madison Square Garden, the most famous you know, sports arena in the world. I'm like, the Knicks haven't been good since 1972. Don't tell me that Madison Square Garden, the Knicks, what are you talking about? All right, they'll never learn. In any event, it's interesting. It's going to be a recurring theme. And the Madison Square Garden during this time is going to be like the place to be. We're going to see there going to be several rallies and protests held at Madison Square Garden in New York. So in March uh, of 33, uh, 20,000 people, uh, you know, packed Madison Square Garden. Uh, there was an additional, they say, 35,000 outside. Uh, the, these guys, Brightman and Liftman, say there was, they, their guesstimate was about more than a million people around the country marched against Nazi Germany and their atrocities. Who was there? Uh, Senator Robert Wagner, Al Smith, Methodists. Um, they tried to get a non-Jewish coalition there as well to show up. Who didn't show up? FDR, for sure. Um, Germans. Most Germans were very pro-Germany still at the same. Many of them were. The Catholics didn't show up, nor did the Blacks. Now, why didn't the Blacks show up? This would be a point of great controversy, because already back then, the way Lichtman and, and, and Breitman point out, for two reasons. Number one, it's already beginning, particularly in New York, where you begin to have racial tensions between the Jewish community and the black community, which is a problem still to today. Number one. Number two is a sad reality is African-Americans didn't bring any political weight to the table. You know, a bunch of blacks showing up in 1933 protesting, you know, atrocities. You know, blacks, this is still the era of Jim Crow, not in New York City, it ain't all that much better. They don't add, they didn't add anything historic at that time to the equation. So they, I don't, I think they were basically un, not uninvited, but they, it wasn't considered um, a strategic interest to make sure the African-American community showed up. A day after this rally, the Nazis declare a boycott of all Jewish goods for, you know, a, I don't know, for a day or two days. Um, that was their response. You're going to protest what we're doing. We're going to boycott the Jews. This is an interesting point just for its own right. And this is as early as 1933. Why is this significant? What it shows and highlights and demonstrates is a peculiar element about Nazi Germany. You know, nowadays, let's say if you look at some of the is certain Islamic extremist terrorists, you know, they go ahead and, you know, they'll do some commit some atrocity. They want the world to hear about it. They want the publicity. They're looking for that. Hitler and the Nazis were very strange. They were committing and would go on and continue to commit terrible atrocities. The, the worst atrocities in the history of humanity, they didn't want the world to know about it, number one. And number two, they responded negatively slash violently to negative publicity. They were very sensitive to their image, uh, their worldwide image. So if you're going to go, you're going to go ahead and protest against us. You know, we're, we need to go ahead and, and it created turmoil. We're going to boycott you. And this would be a very interesting thing, an interesting phenomenon about, about Nazi Germany in general and their, their general attitude um, to the world. Um, there was a second protest rally again in 33. Over 100,000 Jews show up or people show up in New York. 
What was the United States government's initial response? 33, 34, how did the government in the United States respond? Not just FDR in specific, but the government in general. So, okay. So the, the truth of the matter is, and this is a point I was listening to a lecture by Rabbi Stephen Przanski. He points out, and, and it's it's echoed in, in Breitman and Lichtman's work, is the United States has a history up until very recently, up until mid 20th century, of not really responding to the domestic affairs of foreign countries. Something that's happening, the domestic sins of a foreign country, the United States typically you know, never said anything. Now, why not? Why wouldn't the United States say anything? Something horrible happened in the 1850s. Why didn't the United States speak up against an atrocity? None of our business. Number two, slavery. Who are we to go ahead and talk about, look at the sins happening in Russia when the United States itself has sins of its own? It, the United States did not have any kind of moral upper hand when, you know, and even past slavery, you have, you know, Jim Crow in the South. The United States, you know, people could just point right back to the United States. What are you talking to? Czarist Russia would say, what are you? What are you talking to me about? You know, go look in the mirror. And, and that was a typical pattern. Um, there are a couple of minor exceptions, particularly in, in, in Jewish history. Van Buren uh, in 1840 did issue a mild protest to the Damascus blood libels. Teddy Roosevelt issues, again, a mild protest uh, in 1900, whatever it is, 1903, the Kishinev programs. But those are exceptions. Typically, we talked about, you know, the Hebron massacre of 29. Hoover didn't say anything. Why not? Because who are we to say anything? We've got problems of our own. Um, Rabbi Prozansky, again, it, it was a wonderful lecture on, on, on FDR. He says it's an interesting thing. This is the, the, the tradition amongst the United States when there's some you know, domestic atrocity in a foreign country. You know, the typical response is we denounce, we decry, we make threats. When we hear about how bad you know, the atrocity is, we say never again. And we do nothing. And then it happens again. Think about, remember what happened just a couple of years ago with the Boko Haram. Remember they, they, that horrible thing, right? It was 270 some odd girls are kidnapped, right? You realize half of them have not come home yet, right? What was our response? I, I, I hate to say it. I remember we made turn, I, here at the call, we, would, we joked about it, not about the, the, the atrocity. We joked about the, the response. What was the United States' big response? You remember? What? Social media. Do you remember the social media? Bring back our girls. It was everywhere. And I remember we would laugh. I, I hate to say, but I, we laughed at that. Like that, that's, that's our mentality. You've got a, 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 you know, a horrible situation going on and we feel good. You know how we responded? We, you know, Michelle Obama holds up a sign that says, bring back our girls, right? Did the United States do anything militarily? Absolutely not. You know, and is that a reflection of bad character of the United States? Not necessarily. Yes, no, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting debate. Here you have some, you know, terrible humanitarian crisis going on somewhere in, in, in Africa. Are we really ready to send our soldiers into harm's way for something that really doesn't gain, you know, us any political strategic value? And the answer is typically we don't. Well, I have one thing on the Boko Haram thing. Yeah. We did, we just, we did. 
it could be, I don't know, maybe I just don't know about it. Maybe we did some, but this, the typical response to atrocities the United States doesn't do. And I'm, I don't say that in a critical way. It's, 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 a, it's a really difficult question. You know, we should do something. Okay, who's volunteering their kids, you know, to go fight that war that really has no gain for us? It's a very difficult question. The State Department of the United States during this period are the real villains of our story. The State Department was filled of, at best, a bunch of wasps, non-interventionists, people like Cordell Hull, who's the Secretary of State, who uh, I would call him indifferent to Jewish persecution. Um, He felt free trade is far more important than human right violations. Um, He didn't particularly care about the persecutions of the Jews. That was a big bulk of the State Department. The other remaining part of the State Department were out-and-out anti-Semites. Out-and-out anti-Semites. The top of that list would be Breckenridge Long, who's really going to join our story a little bit later on. He is, in my opinion, the villain of the story. Uh, Breckenridge Long, undersecretary. uh, I think he's the undersecretary of state. uh, Just a terrible person. No, the undersecretary at the beginning was William Phillips. He was the head of, he, he was a high level official at the, at the State Department. He was, you know, later on, but 38, 39, he's going to be the one in charge of visas and, immigra- and immigration. And he was just an outright anti-Semite who was totally fine with Jews going to the gas chambers. Um, you know, a terrible, terrible person. And that would be, you know, the greatest tragedy um, is the State Department. Terrible anti-Semites. Congress, what were Congress's feelings? And this is a very important point during at least for the whole 30s. The United States is just coming, you know, dealing with the Great Depression. The unemployment rates are through the roof. People who are out of work, people who are underemployed, people who are having a hard job, hard time finding employment and finding work, are hesitant to allow more immigrants into the country and now compete with the, the scarce jobs that exist in the first place. And therefore, because of that, Congress, most elected officials who have the most direct responsibility to their constituency, Congress was very much you know, opposed to immigration very indifferent to Jewish suffering. Uh, again, I'm, I'm speaking in very broad strokes. There obviously were many who were very sensitive and, and open, but by and large, um, they, were, they were isolationists. Um, certainly the majority of them were, um, and many of them were still outright anti-Semites. Representative Louis, Louis, Louis McFadden of Pennsylvania endorsed the notion of worldwide Jewish conspiracy, and he believed in the protocols of the elders of Zion. This is an elected official. Um, you know, we think, oh my gosh, it's a scandal. There are anti-Semites in the Congress today. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been the story uh, forever. The Republican Party, the Republican Party were the stronger voice of isolationism. They were very against getting involved in domestic affairs. Now, the Republicans are going to be in the minority for this entire period, virtually this entire period. But they were isolationists. Again, they tended to be the party of the wasps. Uh, and they backed tough immigration restriction, um, making the political calculus that much more confusing is the fact that Jews overwhelmingly supported FDR. 
that actually worked in Judaism's, you know, not in their best interest. FDR didn't need to be concerned about losing the quote unquote Jewish vote because he had it. When you get 82% of the Jewish vote, you can risk, you know, not being super sympathetic to, to, to all of your needs. And that would be one of the great tragedies of the war. Um, therefore, FDR didn't need to appeal to Jews. FDR can count on the Jewish vote. Uh, and FDR wouldn't issue a formal protest uh, about what was going on in Nazi Germany. He wouldn't issue a formal protest well into the war, you know, well into the story. Um, and really, in his first term, FDR took no real interest in the suffering of Jews abroad in Nazi Germany. Thoughts, questions before we move on? Okay, let's talk about what immigration was actually like. The great myth that you'll hear every now again and again is that Jews didn't really want to leave Europe. The Jews were told, no, stay, don't worry, everything will just ride the storm out. You'll hear people say that. That, I believe, is totally incorrect, although I'm sure there were people who felt that that was the correct thing to do. But very early on, particularly in Germany, Everyone wanted to get out very, very quickly. And everyone, the huge numbers, Germans, German Jews saw what was happening. They saw they were suffering early on, 33, 34. They wanted to get out. Jews in, you know, other countries that would eventually fall under Nazi domination, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, you know, in 33, 34, didn't really, I'm I'm sure they were aware of, of Hitler's rise in his attitudes. But they weren't in direct in any, in any peril. Beginning in World War I, as early as World War I, right after World War I, even under Wilson, or back up just a second. Let's go back to 1880. Between 1880 and 1924, let's say, 2.5 million Jews are going to emigrate from Europe, mainly almost exclusively from Eastern Europe, what people will say is Russia. Right, and emigrate to the United States. Everyone in this room, if I ask you, how did you get here? I'll guess 80% of the, you know, our participants tonight say, oh, my great-great-grandma or my great-great-grandfather came from Russia, right? Right? It came from Russia. You didn't probably didn't come from Russia. You came from Soviet or Russian-dominated areas. You were really probably in Poland. Poland wasn't really a country um, from 1791. Till the world end of World War I, Poland wasn't a country. It was divided, partitioned, um, and most Jews, you know, say they're from Russia. You were really from the Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania. That's where you came from. But, you know, they always say Russia, you're from Russia, right? There was no immigration restrictions. Up until 1917, the United States had virtually no immigration restrictions. All those stories of Jews getting stuck on, on Ellis Island, right? The horrors that happened there, they're very few and far between. Most Jews got through Ellis Island pretty Sometimes you had to get quarantined if, if you were sick or they checked, you know, if people had, you know, for, for certain diseases, mental illness, things like that. But by and large, even after the first small elements of immigration, um, not even restriction, but any kind of immigration policy wouldn't be until I believe the 1890s. And even then, it was very minimal. Anyone, you just showed up to the United States, and here you were. You didn't need any documentation, passports, visas. You just came. After World War I, um, the United States became isolationists. The 1920s, 
would be hallmarked by the Red Scare. Many in the United States were concerned that the Soviets, communists, were taking over the country. It's good old-fashioned xenophobia and hatred of the unknown. And the 19, moving in the 1920s, 1921, then 1924, Johnson Reed Act, you have immigration basically came to a halt beginning in 1924. People could not, there was nowhere to go. You wanted to leave Eastern Europe, you couldn't get to the United States. That is the great tragedy of the Holocaust. Is that beginning in 1921, 1924, is immigration was off limits. People who wanted to get out couldn't. Jews were trapped. And a little bit, you know, just a big picture here of the great tragedies and of the great accusations against the world is going to be this terrible story. You know, Hitler obviously is, is the villain, but you can really place blame on every single country. No one was willing to take the Jews. Every, you know, again, we'll see some minor exceptions. And of course, some Jews did get out, but it's a trickle. It's a fraction of a percent. Jews were desperate to get out. There was nowhere to go. United States included. Question. I believe it's because it was mainly because of there was an, in response to World War I, there was a strong feel of isolationism. We don't want to have anything to do with the war. We want to keep outsiders out. There was a rise in the 1920s in xenophobia, hatred of others, just weren't interested anymore. Now, that got multiplied after 1929 and the downward economy. Now, as we mentioned earlier, it's not just xenophobia and I don't like other people and just racial you know, hatred. But now, what do you mean? You're going to have some, some Jew from, from Russia come to the United States and compete for me with my job? I could barely put, put you know, food on the plate of my family. People did not want, did not want immigration. And, and, and that just compounded it in the, in the 1930s. Good question. I was going to say that um, there was a big influx. E? Europe was Right. The United States was attacked. That's another very good point. It would have just been overwhelming. You know, a lot of people did want did want out. Persecution in the twenties that was worse in Russia than what was going on in Germany in the twenties. No, there was no persecution of the Jews in the twenties. If if in general Jews who wanted to get out of Europe before Nazism, before the rise of Hitler. Jews have been fleeing Eastern Europe for now for, for four decades, yeah. but that came to an end. I mean, the life of Jewry in Eastern Europe was tough. So it wasn't escaping from Germany. It was just escaping from the, the poverty of Eastern Europe, of Russia. That came to an end. Now, enter Hitler's persecutions in 33 and 34. There was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to go. Um. And it's important to keep in mind, the strict immigration laws this is a very important point. We're very popular, okay? They were very popular. So it's gonna be a big theme is why didn't FDR do more to help immigration? Keep in mind, politically, loosening Im immigration restrictions did not work towards FDR's political advantage. People didn't want immigrants coming. Um, so, so what happens? Nazi persecution, you know, increases in 1933, 1934. There were some within the government that argued that we should ease, you know, some of the restrictions. 
You know, people like uh, Felix Frankfurter, who has had FDR's ear. Um, and then additionally, a very important person would be Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins was the head of the, was the sec- secretary of labor, first woman cabinet appointment um, who FDR really trusted. And she was a great advocate of loosening immigration restrictions. She actually would counter state. It ended up being a real battle between the State Department against labor. And again, later on would be the Treasury Department led by Henry Morgenthau Jr., Henry Morgenthau Jr. being the only Jew on the, on the, in the cabinet. But that wouldn't be for a few more years. Early on, it was a big battle between Perkins and Hull, Hull in, the, in, the, in state and Perkins in labor. In a way, you know, Perkins really had the best argument. She's in charge of labor. And she said, my numbers, my calculations tell me letting the Jews in is not going to hurt the economy. It'll help the economy. You know, yes, there'll be more people competing for more jobs, but guess what? They'll also increase job opportunities. You know, it's, it's, it's not just one side of the equation. There's another side of the equation. Um, FDR was, you know, basically dealing with warring factions within his, pa- within his cabinet. And he did what the old dictum in, in the Talmud is, you know, sometimes when there's a conflict, sometimes in Judaism, the best way to resolve certain conflicts is you do nothing. You know, just you do nothing and let them fight it out. And state won that fight. State was ultimately in charge of immigration at that, at that point, um, although it would change at, at, at other points. And, and, and state won. And immigration was, uh, was a trickle. In 1933, well, let's just back up. There were strict quotas. What, what had happened was, based on the Johnson-Reed Act in 2021, 20, is that immigration, there was immigration allowed to the United States, but it was based on very strict quoted regulations. It had something to do with the, fact of, the effect of what was immigration, uh, you know, 10% of the immigration number of 1880 from your given country. It was something weird like that. And the numbers were very, very, very low. Um, Just some of the numbers. In 1933, only less than 2,000 German Jew- Germans, they were all Jews, but less than 2,000 Jews immigrated. Uh, in 34, it was 4,000. That's only 17% of the quota. Um, in 1935, it would be 5,000, 20% of the quota. Um, meanwhile, throughout this period, you have over 100,000 Jews on the list actively seeking immigration. Um, Between 1933 and 1943, 1.2 million slots were left unfilled. That's the great, and each one of those slots represents the life lost. Just to, to, I want to speak one very important point out. It's, there are two things at play here. One would be to increase the immigration, the quota of amounts. That was never really a major discussion point. Throughout the entire process, not till very, very late on in the war, for another decade, no one even bothered fighting that fight because you would lose. The State Department, in their riches and their wickedness, did everything to block and not even allow the quotas to be filled. So those low quota numbers, and they were tiny, were only being filled 10%, 20%. And if those quotas had been had been filled, you know, 1.2 million Jews from Germany, you know, would have been would have been saved. And we're not even talking about increasing the quota numbers. 
Does the State Department, you know, have blood on its hand? The answer is a resounding yes. You know, there are 1.2 million, you know, dead Jews, you know, our brothers and sisters, and we can look at our, our country's State Department and, and say, and say, you're responsible for that, directly responsible for that. And it's a great tragedy. FDR's first two years in office, uh, he, he basically had no, he really was out of this issue. He really stayed far away. He was, number one, interested in the midterm elections. And again, increasing immigration and even allowing under the quota. You know, this was not a popular political move. So he was totally not involved. Um, after the 34 midterm elections, um, FDR sets his eyes on re-election. He wants to win the 36 campaign. Um, he's caught in a funny spot because you have the, the, on the one hand, you know, the Republicans who are going to nominate, I believe it's Alf Landon. I believe it's Landon in 34, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah. But he was also fe- facing um, competition from the left. People on the left, some of the great anti-Semites we'll talk about in a moment, uh, Father Coughlin, uh, people like Howie, uh, Huey Long, who's the governor of, Howie Long is the football player, but Huey Long was the governor of Louisiana. Again, out and out anti-Semites, um, crazy would be an understatement. You know, he was actually assassinated. Now, but FDR had to deal with these guys. And again, allow it would be politically not, it would have been suicide politically for him to advocate for Jewish immigration. So he had to toe that line very carefully. Now, now Long would be assassinated. And eventually, you know, so by 35, FDR didn't have to worry about, you know, challenges from the left. Um, but that said, he, he, you know, he really wasn't a huge advocate um, for Jewish um, immigration. The Nuremberg Laws of September of 35 essentially stripped Jews of all of their citizenship. In the election of 1936, so, yeah, Alf Landon was, was, you know, the Republican candidate. You know, many try to portray him as an anti-Semite because many of the anti-Semites and the people who hated the Jews, you know, would go ahead and back Alf Landon. Now, to, Alfred Landon, now, to his credit, he repudiated all of those anti-Semitic uh, followers. He himself was, was a decent guy. Uh, again, a strict isolationist, and that was his... That was his um, party's campaign line, uh, but he was not an anti-Semite. Um, Stephen Wise, by 36, he's now a big supporter of FDR. FDR wins the, 30, the election in 36 in a landslide. So now FDR is safe. He's got his second term. Keep in mind, when, when, when FDR wins the election in 36, you know, one of the great historical debates is, at what point did FDR think, you know, I'm going to run for an unprecedented third term? Most scholars will tell you, it's hard to, hard to possible to answer that question. You have to get inside FDR's brains, but it probably was the earliest 38, probably not till 39, until he was convinced that the United States was going to be going into war and that he was, you know, absolute necessity. He was a bit of an arrogant guy. Um, you know, he was an absolute necessity for the country. But in 36, you know, he thinks like any other president, he's going to serve a second term. One of the great strengths of a second term president is you don't need to care about your political base anymore because I'm here for the next four years and then I'm out. So 36 represents a real turning point in FDR's um, relationship with Jews suffering under Nazi Germany. 
he now beginning in 36 becomes a, you know, a lot more sympathetic to the plight of Jews suffering. In 1937, he, he, um, he forces the State Department. One of the ways the State Department was able to make sure, was able to keep the quotas so low, or not even, not even allow the quotas to be filled, to keep it at like 15, 20%, was based in a, on an old law called the Public Charge Clause. Any potential immigrants, an applicant seeking immigration, you know, would be denied a visa if you'd be considered a potential, if you'd be a public charge. You know, we don't want an immigrant to come and take care, you know, advantage of all, all the welfare programs. Now, what threshold, you know, do you know for sure that he's going to be a public charge? So the State Department had used, I think it goes back to, to Wilson already, that the threshold was a possible public charge. Now, a possible, anyone could be a possible public charge. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Broke tomorrow. He's a possible public charge. You know, anyone is, uh, is, is, a, is a possible public charge. FDR would change that, that threshold to being a likely public charge. And thereby, he was committed. He committed, he said, I want to see 10,000 Jews coming in. That was, that was his commitment. He, he wanted to see that happen. Based on the pressures of people like Perkins, people like Wise, and people um, like Morgenthau. Um, and indeed, by 1937, uh, over 10,000 Jews um, are able to flee uh, Nazi Germany. But again, that's less than 50% of the quota limits. Well, again, we're not even talking about raising the quotas, but less than the existing quota limits, less than 50, 50%. Um, March, in March 1938, um, March 1938 represents a major turning point in Nazi Germany. March 1938, you know, is really when Hitler really begins his quest of world domination. Begins with his, the Anschluss. He needs Lebensraum, living space, and he goes ahead and he, you know, basically Germany eats up Austria. It's a bloodless revolution, although he threatened, you know, he, he threatened Austria um, and, and they acquiesced. And the Germany, you know, now eats up Austria. Now you have 175,000 more Jews who are now under the terror of Nazi Germany. Um, FDR, and, and again, FDR at this point becomes a lot more sympathetic to the, to the plight of Jews. Does he become overly sympathetic? No, he will never throughout his career ever put the suffering of Jews ahead of his political considerations. Pol his political considerations will always come first. But again, at this point, he doesn't. He has very little to risk, so he's willing to go ahead and and put his neck out just a little bit more because he doesn't have that, all that much to risk. He argues that we should go ahead and combine Austria and German quotas as they are now one country. If they go ahead and Germany says, "Well, we're now one country," so we should be able to go ahead and say, "Okay." So internally, the United States should view their quota numbers under one under one category, thereby that would actually allow for more Jews under the quota system um, to be allowed in. Of course, the State Department didn't want that, and the State, State Department uh, protested. Um, and he said, but this time we're really going to fill it. And he committed to filling 27, about 27,000 Jews, and that would be filled, I believe, in 38 and 39. The pr great tragedy is there are over 300,000 Jews at this point on the waiting list. The other thing that, that 
FDR, to his credit, does is in July of 1938, FDR, and he took great pride in this, he had this brilliant idea is what he claimed. He said, I came up with this idea on my own. He realized, why should the United States be the only country you know, dealing with Nazi persecution of the Jews? Let's get the whole world together. And in 1938, he puts together the Evian Conference. Evian Conference would be one of two major worldwide conferences dealing with the, the, the persecution of the Jews. It happened in Evian, France in July. Um, the stipulations were for all the governments that, that participated is that number one, you, we're not asking anyone for any money. All the money for these, these you know, rescue plans or really relief plans would you know, come from private sources. Um, he wasn't asking anyone to go ahead and change existing law, but rather to, to allow immigration under your country's existing laws. And he said, we're not talking about Israel. Israel was a point of great controversy. The British were against uh, settling Israel, which we don't have time to talk about now. Many Republicans opposed it. Um, there were lots of debates. Um, and what really emerged from the Evian conference is that no one cared. And no one wanted the Jews. Famously, Australia would say, we don't have a Jewish problem and we don't want a Jewish problem. And they turned, they were, wouldn't, wouldn't go ahead and, and they had, weren't interested in any Jews. The only one country that actually you know, did anything was the Dominican Republic, which said that they would admit 100,000 Jews, um, but based really on the, 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 the work of the State Department and others, Ultimately, that all fell apart, and only 700, 700 some, some odd Jews would actually make it in. Um, okay, we've gone a little, we're, we're kind of out of time, so maybe we'll, we'll hold it here. Next week, we'll talk about, beginning in 38, what are FDR's responses in 38. We'll talk about some of the opportunities of, that FDR put forward, resettlements in Latin America, and what happened with that. We'll talk about, we didn't get to some of the anti-Semitic responses within the United States specifically, like Father Coughlin, Charles Lindbergh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the story of the St. Louis, very popular story, the story of the St. Louis, the plight of the, of the boat, the, the St. Louis, we'll talk about that. Um, and then we'll talk about the start of the war and what happened then. Thoughts, questions before we call it a night because our time is up. Phyllis had a question. You and I talked about it. I told you about my grandfather, who I never met, saw the from Austria, saw the handwriting on the wall way before because they came here. My father was born here. Uh-huh. So he came, assuming my father went into the army at 18. Uh, my grandfather came much earlier. Right. So it's way before the rise of Hitler. Right. So, so he, he saw it coming. Well, many, again, there again, Austria, I don't know as much, but in, in Eastern Europe, most, a huge percent of Jews would leave Eastern Europe from the year 1880, you know, onward uh, to the United States because it's just the poverty and, you know, the late, the, the, the dormant anti-Semitism was noticeable yes. and people wanted out. Yes. Uh, Very done. minor point. You said the Nazi expansion began with the Anschluss. What about, when did they occupy the Rhine line? Okay, so well, that that's actually next. That's that's um, with Munich. Uh, uh, that's oh no, so it's, that's the Sudetenland. So the Rhineland is, I think, in between the two. 
So it's going to be somewhere in 38. But it's right around. It happens all at the same time. It goes into the, into, into the Anschluss and the Rhineland, then the Sudetenland in, in, uh, in Munich, and then, and then Poland, and that's the war. Yeah. What's that? I don't remember. Thirty? No, it's not thirty-six. Maybe thirty-seven. I don't. I don't. I don't remember. I have to. I have to Google it. But uh, can I say something? A question. You know, I'm thinking about uh, maybe it's uh, provocative or theoretical. Let's say that based on the waiting list. And let's assume that there were no, almost no restrictions in the immigration policy. Taking all this into consideration vis-a-vis -vis the 6 million that perished in the Holocaust, would it be a huge change? You know, I, I apologize for speaking of numbers and smaller numbers, but do you think would, that would be a big change in the political numbers? Yeah, the, it, an unqualified yes. Can, yes. can you can you be a little quantitative about it? Because you speak about waiting for 300,000 and 10,000 here, 10,000 on top of that, there were ways, there were many, beginning in 38 and 39, there were many proposals of, hey, we're not even asking. No, they could have increased the, the, the quotas. But even they had, you know, ideas that, that came up in 38 and 39 of let's mortgage future year's quotas today. In other words, let's allow whatever it is, a few hundred thousand Jews in now, and we're going to mortgage that against a couple of years from now's quota limits, because in 1943, 1944, 1945, there might not be any Jews left. So let's use those quotas today in 1938 and, and, and you know, front load it. So there were many creative ideas that were out there that, you know, up for relief of and, and to open up immigration. But again, it fell on deaf ears or even worse, anti-Semitic ears in, in, the, in the State Department. And, and, and again, the State Department's not the only one to blame, although they're, they're at the the top of the list, but to some degree, it's really the population of the United States. Congress didn't want to, to, to increase immigration quotas because their constituents didn't want, to re want, didn't want to raise the immigration limits because, again, of xenophobia. And number two, they didn't want to compete to job with, with, with their jobs. And I would add one more point. We're just talking about the United States. As we're going to discuss next week, there were proposals of other countries throughout around the world, Latin America, there were interesting proposals in Alaska, to resettle Jews in Alaska and other interesting places. Um, there were many opportunities that were available and a little bit of the pushback um, against people, who, the books like Myth of Rescue and the like is, as we're gonna see, it wouldn't be until 44, 1944, very late in the game, less than a year left in the war, where the United States would actually start begin to be actively involved in rescue and relief. And they had a lot of success. Again, it was too little too late, but even in those short windows, there was tremendous success. And the, one of the arguments is, had we just tried, 
you know, we could have figured things out and, and it would have been less horrific. Also, not all of the money from when we swam there was to go. Okay. You know, it was a lot of money that went missing. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't, you know, they proposed to send as much money to Europe, but it never got. Okay. Somehow. Which is no big deal. Yeah. And Truman would get involved in that uh, later in the war, but but yes. What's the goal of the people crossing the Rio Grande? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I don't. Right. Did FDR actually ever acknowledge that there was a problem in '38, or was he pressured, you know, just to allow more Jews in? Was there any public acknowledgement? So very quietly. Publicly, not, not, I think, until, I think his first public condemnation um, is maybe, all, all, you know, 38, 39. I can check my notes. But, um, yeah, I want to say after Kristallnacht, um, he, he did, there, there was, you know, there was public con- condemnation, um, I think, beginning already by then. I, I think by then, but certainly by 39, he... he you know, he he had a, a a hunch that the United States would go to war, so he wasn't really interested in. in he wasn't which is going to be the main Scott. That that will be the main headline for next for next week's class. Win the war, win the war, win the war is going to be FDR's main argument. Question. I don't know. From Germany, that's right. Yeah. So he was one of these right. lucky few. Yeah, so he, he came here very luckily, and he was like famous. They had like meetings, he would meet with other like German immigrants, they would like have like rallies, they would talk about it like very publicly and publicly, like what's going on. Sure. And so it's like more Jews are coming over, it's higher, it's like it's kind of your face. Exactly. And that's why there was a huge pushback. You know, people, as they see Jews coming, you know, that works to Jews, uh, um, you know, against against the Jews. Now, one of the things that FDR is going to do in 36, you know, he first of all, he 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 gets rid of the possible public charge clause. Another thing that he does is one of the tricks of the of the State Department. And I apologize. I've gone over. If anyone feel free to leave, but I'll just answer questions now. One of the tricks that the State Department did. In, in their, you know, real richness and their evilness is they made the, the, the bureaucratic red tape to get a visa into a nightmare. So at one point, you know, you needed to get documentation from the country that you're trying to leave, you know, stating that, you know, you were a good citizen, that you haven't had, you know, any arrests, you've been, you know, all this stuff, you know, from your, your local police department, right? Now, isn't that funny, but Nazi Germany wasn't in the habit of issuing those kinds of papers. You know, it was very, very, very difficult. That was one of the roadblocks, um, you know, that Jews had. Additionally, you needed to get affidavits signed by, um, by family members here in the United States to sponsor. So one of the things that FDR is going to do in 36 is, you know, get rid of a lot of that bureaucratic red tape, and he's going to loosen the affidavit um, uh, restrictions. I, I want to end with a very important point on the affidavit story, and this is probably things that your, your grandpa- grandparents have to deal with. I, I know stories of, you know, Jews going ahead and lying on the affidavits, 
one of the things that, that uh, you know, saying, yes, he's my uncle, he's my brother, he's my sister, she's my sister. Um, you needed to show potential for employment. So shul synagogues throughout the country used to have like 800 gabais. You know, the gabai is like the, you know, an assistant in the shul, right? Is that okay? The answer is an unqualified absolute yes. You must. Of course, you lie to save lives. And you don't give a darn about the United States, you know, red, red tape. You lie, lie, lie to save, save lives. Absolutely. Uh, there's no question about it. To a person going ahead and saying, ah, I can't lie on that type of thing. You know, that's, that's cruelty. That, that's the, the verse in Mishle and Proverbs that says, Rachme Rashaim Ahzari, the mercy of evil is, uh, the, the, the mercy of the evil is cruelty. You know, you're, you're, you know, that was the right thing to do. And, and, you know, that's how many did make it in. So I, I feel bad. We've gone way over. So I'm just going to. The, the question was, is would you, was it okay to lie on the affidavit forms to, to let, you know, to let Jews in the answers a hundred percent without question? You know, the answer is yes. All right. So next week, please, God, we're going to talk, we're going to pick it up. Uh, beginning in 38, more like in 39, we're going to talk about, you know, Kristallnacht, post-Kristallnacht, and, you know, the early parts of the war. Uh, and if we get to that, we're going to start talking about uh, issues of actual rescue and relief um, and things like that. And if we have time, some of my personal reflections on FDR. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.